Good evening. Uh, welcome back to our study of 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 9, and yeah, it's kind of a glasses kind of day today, so hope you can see through these Coke bottle jobs I'm wearing. Um, we are talking about the commitment that Paul had to the gospel. Uh, we're talking about the sacrifices he was willing to make for the sake of the spread of the gospel. It started in chapter 8, talking to the church in Corinth about how they should be willing to lay aside some of their own rights for the sake of the unity of the congregation, for the sake of the spread of the, the word of Jesus Christ. And we're right now, we're in the middle of chapter 9. So if you get your Bible out and turn to 1 Corinthians nine 19, we're going to go through the end of the chapter. It's only eight verses. But I was recently looking at some internet research about how Olympic athletes train. I'm somebody I like to try to stay fit. Uh, you may not be able to tell it by looking at me, but I do try to watch what I eat and I, I try to get as much exercise as I can. And so I wanted to compare it to how, do, how does what I do compare to elite athletes? It was rather humbling to read this. This is, this is one blog written by an Olympic triathlete. And here's what her daily schedule looks like. 8 a.m., she runs for six miles. 10 a.m., an hour of swimming. 3 p.m., a two-hour, quote-unquote, easy spin on a bike through the mountains of Colorado. And that's an easy day. That's one of her easier days of training. So a hard day looks like this. She starts at 5.30 in the morning with 80 minutes in the pool. Uh, 9 a.m., she is doing seven miles of hard running on the track. And then at 3 p.m., she does 90 minutes of sprint intervals on her bike. And meanwhile, she's eating a diet of mainly protein powders and vegetables and chicken. And every night she's getting at least eight hours of sleep. In fact, that's one common theme I read from all these Olympic athletes is your body needs at least eight hours of sleep a night to be at your best. And as hard as the physical training sounds to me, the eight hours of sleep is equally hard. I don't know how you can get that much sleep. I try and I can't. So all of these made me feel like I'm really lazy. Uh, and I don't know how they make you feel, probably similar. But think about on a spiritual level. Have you ever met someone whose commitment to Jesus was so profound and so genuine that they didn't just make you feel lazy, they made you feel inspired. They made you think, I should be doing that. I've had so many of those opportunities as a pastor, uh, I can remember before I even became a pastor, when I was in seminary, one of the jobs I had was cleaning a church there in Fort Worth. And the church had a missionary house where missionaries on furlough would stay for their time in the States. The guy who was there at the time was a missionary to Gaza, which, you know, 20 plus years ago when this happened, just like today, one of the most dangerous places on earth. And I said to him, I bet you're so glad to be back in the United States. And he said, no, actually, I wish I was back there right now. He said, that's, that's where my heart is. I can't wait to go back. And it really highlighted for me something that I'd never really realized. I'd, I'd heard missionaries speak my whole life and thought about how much they're sacrificing for the cause of Christ. And, oh, I could never do that. But what I realized after talking to him and after meeting some other missionaries is they're following their heart. They're doing what God called them to do. That's where they love. That's where they love living. Um, I, I can remember around the same time, uh, Carrie and I went on a date, a double date with another couple about our age. 
And we'd been married for a little over a year and we had our issues. I wasn't the most patient of people and we had our struggles as most young couples do and even older couples. And being around this couple for just a few hours, I saw how this man treated his wife, how he was patient with her in moments that would have made me get sarcastic or even raise my voice. And it made me think, I need to be around this guy more often. I need to I need to learn from him because I wish I treated my wife the way he treats his wife. That looks more like loving your wife the way Jesus loved the church. And then there was a period of time for about 10 years where I was on a committee uh, that oversaw or encouraged uh, people who did campus ministry. Baptist student ministry is uh, very special in my life because it was through BSM that I grew in Christ, that I met my future wife. Uh, that, that alone's enough. And, and so I was glad to be able to, for 10 years, help raise funds for BSMs, help encourage BSM directors. And once a quarter, we'd have a meeting where all the BSM directors, all the college minister directors would get together and they'd share what's going on on their campus. And every time I would leave inspired, I'd think, man, these young men and women, they're getting paid peanuts. Nobody really recognizes them as doing something important. They don't get the, the uh, applause and the bona fides that I do as a pastor. And yet they were so excited about what God was doing on their campuses. They were so committed to seeing young people come to know Christ and, and young Christians equipped for greater ministry. And I would leave thinking, I need to be as committed as they are. I need to be exci as excited about God's plan and his mission in the world as they are. So... Paul was that kind of person. When you were around him, you felt like, I should do more. And here in this chapter, he inspires us in several ways. This is one of my favorite sections that we're going to look at tonight. One of my favorite sections in all the writings of Paul. So starting with verse 19, he says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant of all, so that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that through all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. So you might say this is Paul's ministry philosophy. This is something we see acted out through the course of his life. And this is a ministry philosophy that every church and every individual Christian should be inspired to emulate. And the principle comes down, and there's three principles in this Bible study. The principle here comes down to people matter more than my own preferences and more than my own freedom. As he says, I do all things for all people that through all possible means, I might win some. Remember, this isn't Paul saying, I'm trying to make everybody happy. We've seen Paul's life and we know he didn't mind getting in someone's face. He didn't mind rebuking people. He didn't mind disappointing people. He didn't mind even being persecuted if it was for the cause of Christ. What he's saying is, whatever it takes to see somebody saved, that's what I'm going to do. And that is an attitude that is so lacking in me so often, so lacking in most churches, most Christians. Let's talk. Let's go through this. First of all, he, he says some kind of seemingly contradictory things. He says, to the Jews, I became like a Jew. Well, that seems silly because Paul is a Jew. So what is he saying? 
He's saying, I'm going to continue to observe Jewish traditions when I'm around other Jews that aren't necessary for the sake of the gospel. When I'm with other Jews, let's say, I'm going to go ahead and eat a kosher diet because I don't want to offend them. I'm going to do what I have to do. There's even a story in which Paul takes Timothy with him on a missionary journey, but first he goes and has him circumcised. Why? I mean, Paul wrote an entire book of the Bible, Galatians, saying that circumcision isn't necessary. But he does it because he doesn't want to, to cause offense in, Gentile, in Jewish territories by bringing this young man who is half Gentile. He doesn't want to cause offense. He doesn't want to do anything that would hinder the gospel in any way. Now, here's another question. How did he become like one outside the law? That's the term he uses. Does that mean he did whatever he wanted to do? No. When he's around Gentiles, he says, I'm going to be like somebody who doesn't know the law, so I don't find myself judging Gentiles for doing things that I was raised not to do. I mean, uh, to use an example from a couple of weeks ago, it's like you're planting a church in an area where people are not churched, where they didn't grow up in churches, and they, they come into church doing things that you would have seen as scandalous when you were growing up, like wearing baseball caps in worship or uh, using certain foul language or, uh, you know, not knowing they're supposed to bow their heads during the prayer, whatever the case may be. And you as a, a church planter, as a missionary, you don't make a big deal about those things. You think, okay, we can cover the incidentals later on. Right now, I'm going to be like somebody outside the law. I'm going to be like somebody who doesn't care about stuff like that, even though I kind of do. Because what matters is the gospel. What matters is seeing people get saved. And then for, finally, I want to show you verse 23. Uh, when he says, so that I might share with them in its blessings. I, I do all this for the sake of the gospel, he says. And we think of the gospel as being about salvation. The gospel is how we get saved, how we go to heaven when we die. And that is absolutely true. So what is he talking about when he says, I want to share in its blessings. I do all this for the sake of the gospel. The gospel is about more than just what happens when you die. This is another blind spot we have in evangelical churches. The gospel is something we should live every day. The gospel is how you experience abundant life. Because if you're putting people ahead of yourself consistently, you're going to have that freedom, that joy, that humility that brings the blessing of God, that, that gets you away from the kind of pridefulness and vanity and, and infatuation with the things of this world, and legalism, for that matter, all those things that block genuine Christians from living out an abundant and joyful life. He's saying, I want to live the gospel every day so that I can experience all of its blessings. That's what a lot of Christians need to get through their minds is the deeper you dive into the gospel, the, the closer you get to Jesus, it's not like you're going to have less fun in life and less enjoyment. You're going to have more. There's a whole lot of Christians who seem to think, I want as much Jesus as I need to get saved, but no more. Because I want to I save, save as much of my life for myself as I can. And that's the road to spiritual mediocrity and, and, frankly, to a life that is joyless. But if you dive into Jesus, if you are committed to the gospel each and every day, if every day you're, you're seeking to grow closer to him than you were the day before, that's the path to joy. That's the path to abundance. So let me just ask you this. And then we'll move on to the next point, because I know I'm spending a lot of time here. But like I said, this is one of my favorite passages. When it comes to your faith in Jesus, 
On the one hand, there's the mindset that says, well, my faith in Jesus is like fire insurance. I have it in case I need it. And I know I'm going to need it when I die. And in the meantime, I might need it when I get into trouble. On the other hand, it's your day-to-day life. It's your food and your drink. It's the oxygen you breathe. Where do you stand on that continuum? Closer to fire insurance or closer to oxygen? And that's going to determine the amount of joy, the amount of abundance you experience and enjoy in life. So he goes on, verse 24. Love this part. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. One of the things I love about Paul is he was a sports fan. He used athletic metaphors and analogies often in his writing, which was Remarkable, considering the attitude of a lot of Israelites, a lot of Jews at that time towards sports was very disdainful because sports was a Roman Greek kind of thing. Uh, they That was foolishness. That was the kind of thing that good, godly people didn't get involved in. But Paul saw so many parallels between athletics and the spiritual life. And yet at the same time, he used those analogies often to inspire us, but to say, if you think winning a championship on on an athletic field is great, it doesn't even come close to the glory of achieving something for God and, and selling yourself completely to the kingdom of God. He says here, I love this. I love this analogy. In a race, people aren't there just to get a participation ribbon. And and I'm not asking you to think about the 5K in downtown Conroe, because the truth is a lot of us run that just to get the T-shirt. He's talking about Olympic Games. Nobody gets into the Olympics just to say, hey, I made it to the Olympics. And by the way, we're missing the Olympics this summer, or we missed the Olympics this summer because of COVID. They had to postpone it. I'm hoping they get to do it next summer in Tokyo. That is such a wonderful event every year. People from all over the world gather and compete in all these different sports. I love it. But every one of those athletes, they're there to win. You, you, you better believe their goal is not just to finish the race. It is to stand on that podium wearing that gold medal. And he says, if that's true of an athlete, then it should be even more true of us. We should be doing whatever we have to do to excel for Christ, to be the best follower of Jesus we can be. Not because we have to be, because of grace, he accepts us just as we are. Because we realize that's where the glory is. That's where the joy is. That's, that's where real living is. So think again about what I said at the outset of this Bible study. Uh, remember the daily schedule of that Olympic triathlete that I read to you and, and how, how much commitment that took. That's literally a full-time job. And yet, if she wins the Olympic triathlon, what does she get? She gets a medal of gold. Maybe she gets some endorsements. With something like triathlon, probably not. She's probably not going to be on a Wheaties box or get many commercials. But even so, if she gets that, let's say she does, her moment of fame is pretty short. I mean, even someone like Simone Biles, who's won multiple Olympic gold medals in gymnastics, or someone like Michael Phelps, multiple gold medals in swimming, their moment of glory is maybe four to eight years. One of my favorite Olympic athletes, Carl Lewis, He was in, I think, three separate Olympics. The last Olympics he was in, he finished last. I mean, your moment of glory is short. By the way, I saw Carl Lewis not long ago. He looks like he could still get out and run. Good for him. 
But the point is, he can't still compete at that same level. Their trophies are, are only for a moment. Our trophy lasts forever. Our glory lasts forever. The glory of representing Christ well is something that we will rejoice in for all of eternity. Think about that, that parable of the, the talents and the three servants of the king who were given opportunities to serve the king who had left for a time. And when he comes back, two of the servants have, have busted their tails and have doubled their master's earnings. And he rejoices in them. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. But that third servant has buried his gold in the ground saying, well, you know, I didn't want to try and fail. And the master says, throw him out. That's not a parable about salvation. That's a parable about don't live in such a way that you'll regret, that you didn't do more with your opportunities in this life. I think every day we should ask ourselves the question, what did I do today that's going to matter in eternity? And that doesn't mean we can't do things for fun. That doesn't mean we can't sleep in in the mornings or, or, or watch football or Netflix or, or read a book that has nothing to do with the gospel. We all need those times of, of recharge. But it does mean every day we need to do something that matters. Let's not waste our lives. We just have a short time on this earth. And the good part comes next. And in the meantime, let's serve God. Because in eternity, we won't be able to reach people who don't know Jesus. We won't be able to help those who are hurting. We won't be able to love those who are lonely. Let's do it now. And then finally, verses 26 and 27. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So here's the part of the passage that always convicts me. I mean, the whole passage is, I think, incredibly inspiring. But that last line, lest I myself should be disqualified. Paul is saying it is possible for even someone like him, maybe the most devoted follower of Jesus, who ever lived, it's possible for him to fall so far away from the will of God in his life that he can wreck his ministry. When he's talking about being disqualified, he's not talking about being disqualified for heaven because since we didn't do anything to get to heaven, I don't think we can do anything to cause God to reject us. I don't think that's what he's saying. I'm talking about Paul could have committed sin that would disqualify him from ministry. That would have meant that all those churches he planted would have taken a look and said, man, are we really following Jesus? Uh, if the guy who introduced us to him is a fraud, uh, that would have meant that Paul would no longer have been supported by the church at Antioch in his in his church planning movement, and it, which would have meant that Paul never would have been able to stand and preach the gospel again or, or write letters to churches that would have been accepted as gospel. They would have rejected those letters. Paul could have done things that would have disqualified him from ministry. And man, sad to say, we've seen that happen. I've seen it happen to people I considered close friends and still do. People who I knew, they weren't wolves in sheep's clothing. They weren't frauds who were suddenly exposed. They were men who were genuinely devoted to the church and to the name of Jesus and to the cause of Christ. And somehow, some way, they got off track and they ruined their ministry and they destroyed their families. And it's one of the great tragedies. I, I just It breaks my heart every time it happens. But every time it happens, it's a reminder to me, it could happen to me. I am not above this. I am not 
I am not more godly than these men who've stumbled. So when Paul says in verse 27, I, I discipline my body and keep it under control, this is one of those cases where I don't like the, in, the ESV translation because the literal Greek says, I beat my body and make it my slave. Again, that's the picture of an athlete. An athlete does things to his body that hurt things that you would never choose to do unless there was a reward on the other side of it. I make my body my slave. I am in control. I am not controlled by my appetites. I am not following the cue of my body that wants to sleep in and my stomach that wants to eat more and my, my rear end that wants to sit instead of getting out and running. I am making my body my slave, which brings up the question, what in what ways are we suffering right now for our faith? And I realize, thank God, we live in a country where we don't face physical persecution for our faith. We don't, there is literally no threat that simply gathering and worshiping Jesus and spreading the gospel is going to result in jail time. Uh, we're, we live in a free country and, it, and it's a great thing but we should still be suffering in some ways. We should still uh, put ourselves in positions where there are those who are going to oppose us. There are those who are going to ridicule us, ostracize us, criticize us because they hate our commitment to Christ. If that's not happening, is it because we're trying harder to win the approval of people than to serve Jesus? Is it because we're not taking any risks? We're living a very safe faith? Is it because we're only spending our time around fellow believers who approve of the way we live? I mean, all of those are, are very indicting statements. This is what I'm going to talk about on Sunday, on Saturday and Sunday. We're going to talk about the marks of Jesus Christ and how Paul, for the, for the cause of Christ, got himself into big-time trouble and almost died many times. You and I may not ever physically be assaulted for our faith, but we should live in such a way there will be people, there will be circumstances that cause us to suffer. And if not, why not? Let's quit waiting for the Christian life to get easy and convenient. Let's live it to our fullest. Um, when he says, I myself will not be disqualified, let me, this next chapter uh, chapter 10, verse 12, he says, Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And that's that whole idea that I just shared with you. I need to constantly remind myself that I can stumble. I can disgrace myself. I can disgrace our church. I can disqualify myself from the ministry. I can destroy my family. I can drive people away from Christ. I can cause everybody who's ever heard me preach to doubt their own faith because of the actions I take and the attitudes I present. And so I need to constantly remind myself of that. Here's, here's a little something, uh, a little confessional moment. I pray often, not every day, but frequently for faithfulness in marriage. And it's not because that's been a struggle for me. Frankly, I'm very happy in my marriage. I, I would be a, a fool in the highest degree to try to seek someone other than the wife I've been given because she makes me very happy. Uh, I've never, frankly, I've never been tempted to stray from, from my wife. That's how happy she's made me. And yet, I know I'm capable of being that big of a fool. Every human being is. And so I pray uh, several times a week, Lord, keep me faithful. Keep me mentally faithful 
and physically and emotionally faithful to my wife. And I pray for other in other areas of my life that I would have integrity. I think about Billy Graham. Uh, there's been a lot of talk in politics lately about so certain politicians following the quote-unquote Billy Graham rule. Don't ever be with a woman other than your wife um, alone. But there are other aspects to the Billy Graham rule. He, you know, he, if you recall, Billy Graham, he never put his hands on money that was given to his ministry. He he funneled it all, or all the donations were sent to his organization, which he did not lead. There was a group of people, a board, that decided his salary, and he was he got paid by his foundation. He didn't he didn't get the money himself. Uh, another part of the Billy Graham rule he he was he was uh, pleased to pray with politicians, but he never allowed himself to become someone who was used by a politician, except once. There was one president where he got too close, and it cost him. And from then on, he, he stuck by his rule. I'm going, to, I'm going to be nonpartisan. I have my own political opinions, but I'm not going to be a guy who's going to be considered the, the personal chaplain to this particular president or this particular party or, or, or candidate. All the time, Billy Graham was thinking, there are so many different ways I could disgrace my ministry, so many different ways I could disqualify myself, and, and, and I want to guard against that. He set up so many different guardrails, and that's such an example to all of us, not just pre Creatures. We need to continually think, my job is to represent Jesus. So what are the ways, if I were the devil, what are the ways that I would attack me? Well, I'm going to fortify those areas. I'm going to set up guardrails in those ways. We should live a life with no leaks. We should live a life that is so full of integrity that the devil's got nothing he can attack. And that should be our goal. We should, we should live a life that is triumphant, a life that glorifies God, and a life that draws others to him. So I hope that inspires you to take a good look at your own life, uh, to live in light of eternity, to live in light of the fact that the devil would love to bring any one of us down, but knowing that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. I, I, I find it interesting and, and fun that I'm preaching on Paul during the weekend and teaching on 1 Corinthians uh, during the week. I think that ties in well together. So I hope you'll be there this weekend for life group and worship Saturday or Sunday. Uh, if you can't be there physically, please continue to watch us. We're going to keep on streaming, but you have a great week. God is with you and I love you. Have a great week. God bless you.